In March of 2020, Sally Sussman, the chief corporate affairs officer at Pfizer, found herself at the helm of one of the most urgent, high-stakes public dialogues of our times. She and her team successfully found ways to break through and persuade millions to change their assumptions about Big Pharma and build confidence in the life-saving technology they developed. Hey, it's Dustin, and you're listening to another episode of The Burleson Box. Today on the show, I'm so honored to speak with Sally Sussman, the Executive Vice President and Chief Corporate Affairs Officer at Pfizer. She's also the Vice Chair of the Pfizer Foundation. Sally leads engagement with all of Pfizer's external stakeholders, overseeing communications, corporate responsibility, global policy, government relations, investor relations, and patient advocacy. Before joining Pfizer in 2007, she held several senior communications and government relations roles at Estee Lauder Companies and the American Express Company. I'm so excited to speak with Sally today on the Burleson Box, but first, here's a message from our sponsor. When's the last time you evaluated your credit card processing statement? Our partners at Stacks are offering a free savings analysis for our listeners, where they will actually take your merchant statement with your current processor and show you where you're overpaying. Stacks has saved orthodontics practices over 40% per month on payment processing costs. So don't wait. Get your free savings analysis today and see how much you're overpaying for your credit card processing. Go to StacksPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars to schedule your savings analysis today. Plus, as a special offer for our podcast listeners, if you sign up today, you can get your first two months of payments processing costs waived from Stacks. Once again, that's StacksPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars. Stop overpaying. Start saving. Welcome, everyone. I'm so honored to have Sally Sussman on the program. Sally, thank you for being here. Welcome. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. I love your book. It's truly phenomenal. I'm curious what inspired you to write it. I have a few ideas, but I want to hear in your words uh, how you put this together. Oh, thank you. Appreciate the kind words, Dustin. I felt compelled to write this book. Um, I'd been thinking about it over the course of my near 40-year career in corporate affairs and communications, but during the pandemic, when I w- you know work at Pfizer, I'm chief corporate affairs officer and supporting the rollout to build confidence in the vaccine, it just became really crystal clear to me that there's a direct hard line between communications and leadership. And I felt really almost obsessed to write this book. <laughs> it, well, it, it shows. And uh, thank you on behalf of all readers and really society for writing. I loved my communication courses in in my undergrad studies. And I I felt the same way. I never really understood the importance of it. Uh, But you had a background in this before you came to Pfizer, right? Can you talk about your time leading up to this uh, opportunity at Pfizer? Sure. But you made a great insight that there, you know, for, for doctors and I work a lot with scientists. I think sometimes it's not, um, you know, at the front of mind or, or fully aware of just how crucial your communications and marketing and, you know, stakeholder building skills are. So thank you for saying that. Um, to answer your question, I started my career in government. When I was a kid, like most kids, 
I wanted to do good in the world. You know, I wanted to leave the world a better place than I found it. And I, I thought the pathway to that was government. I served six years on Capitol Hill and two years in the Clinton administration. But uh, candidly, I found government a little slow and decided to um, set my career in the private sector. I've worked for three wonderful companies in New York. First, the American Express Company, then the Estee Lauder companies, and now for nearly the last 16 years at Pfizer, as uh, as I mentioned, leading our corporate affairs. It's so impressive. I know you have an interesting family background as well as when I started digging into the book. I've been so impressed with your upbringing and you, the, just the wealth of experience you brought to Pfizer. And by the way, thank you for being there at such a crucial time. I'm a, a three-time, maybe four-time Pfizer vaccine recipient, so we're all very grateful um, that you got the communication piece right. And, um, you know, yeah, I think you're right, kind of hammering the, the prior point. There are a lot of doctors listening to this who went through so much you know, anatomy and histology and pathology and pharmacology and, and surgery. And, and and then I don't, I don't know, we got very much communication at all in, in medical or dental school that I'm aware of. And then we need to communicate with each other. We need to communicate with patients. And at your level, what, I mean, the stakes were, I couldn't imagine them being any higher than at the peak of this pandemic, trying to reassure the public that this vaccine is safe, that it's necessary, that we've done the proper testing on it. Um, you, you break this down wonderfully because it's not just, a, you know, someone's ideas. You've got 10 principles in the book that are really, mm-hmm. really powerful. And um, I, I kind of feel like I'd like for you to share that part of the story. What happened as the pandemic was was arriving at your doorstep? You know, where, what was going through your mind? What sort of kind of epiphany or breakthroughs did you have to achieve to 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 get this successfully rolled out? Sure. Uh, and as you say, so important uh, to doctors and anyone involved in public health. Uh, my niece, who I write a little bit about in the book, is in her first year at medical school, and I, I gave her a crash course in <laughs> communications as she headed in. But to answer your question, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to take just a few minutes and invite people to go back to March of 2020. I don't know where you were, but I was here in New York City, and I remember walking home one evening and stopping into my corner store and seeing the shelves thinning out. Um, I I remember hearing the thrum of refrigerated trucks that were doubling as morgues and being really, really scared. And at the same time, my boss, Pfizer CEO, Albert Borla, um, declared that we had this intention. We had actually a threefold intention. First was to take care of our 85,000 employees around the world. And everybody really had to think about employee wellness, no matter what size your business is, uh, during this time, because people struggled. Secondly, that we needed to ensure the steady stream of medicine around the world, because you know cancer and, and other terrible diseases didn't take a break during the pandemic. And then third, that we would bring forward a vaccine by the end of the year. And that's, Dustin, when I thought, oh, no, (laughs) it's a global pandemic. I'm locked down at home and my boss has gone nuts. Um, Because that was an impossible suggestion. I mean, vaccine discovery, development, and manufacturing is usually a 12-year process, not an eight-month process. But then I saw my boss, Albert, 
do something I had never seen another CEO do. And I've worked for nine CEOs in my career. And that was, he looked around the room and decided that he would appoint the project manager himself. And that's when I said, oh, all right, maybe we are going to do this thing. So, you know, we began to work in a very different way, taking what's typically a linear process and, and doing everything at once, you know, beginning to field the trials, beginning to prepare the manufacturing plant, beginning the regulatory dossier, all before we knew we would make it because we needed to have that kind of speed. So it was during this time that I said, let me set an intention, a very powerful intention. And that was to try to improve the reputation of big pharma and of my company, because, you know, let's face it, we all know that big pharma doesn't have a great reputation or certainly didn't. In fact, that's why I came to Pfizer because I had worked the, the two previous companies, American Express and Estee Lauder had great reputations, but Pfizer and the rest of Big Pharma, not so much. And yet they make life-saving medicine. And I spent the first 10 years of my time here really diving into that problem and researching it, trying to understand it and address it. But it wasn't until the pandemic came that I had a chance to break through and really say, do things differently myself, because I thought it would be tragic if we had this new, wonderful vaccine that people were unwilling to take. And that set me on a course of doing things very differently, uh, putting some of our intellectual property, like our clinical trial protocols, up on the website, um, embedding a film crew and set of reporters in the company to help me tell the story, and just taking these bold moves. And now today, for the last two years, Pfizer has been a top 10 global brand. And, you know, I I know that it, there were a lot of po- politicization of the process. You know, there was a tremendous amount of um, stress and anxiety in the system. At the end of the day, 85% of Americans got vaccinated for COVID-19. And so, you know, I learned a lot during this time, and it was the most exciting and thrilling time in my career. And I want to highlight, you were doing this remotely, right? This, this, You were trying to do this unachievable, previously unachievable feat, and you were all in isolation, right? Across continents, is that correct? Very true. Um, of course, our, our real heroes were the people in the labs who, the labs stayed open, and the manufacturing plant stayed open, and in fact, uh, began to crank out um, quality vaccines at unprecedented rates. Before the pandemic, in our best year, we made 200 million vaccines. During the pandemic, that rose to three and ultimately four billion vaccines. But most of us, you know, the executive teams, the the commercial uh, colleagues, a, a huge number of us were working remotely from home. So you're right. It was a double challenge. Yeah. To wrap my mind around that is unbelievable. You, you would just assume, well, okay, if we're going to be remote, we need more time to get this done than normal. But you went from 10 to 12 years to eight months. What would you say to the listener who says, well, yeah, that you've got this dynamic leader and you've got all these resources. You know, what was that like? Was there skepticism on the board? Where Was there investor pushback? Uh, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, in this country, unfortunately, we kind of politicized a vaccine, which we'd never seen before. 
you know, what would you say to someone in your position or someone who wants to be more effective at communicating when the stakes are high, if maybe they don't have that dynamic leader, or maybe it falls on their shoulders? I get it. And um, I feel strongly that whether you're in a big big entity or a small entrepreneurial one, a single person can make a difference. I mean, I, as I said, I've worked for these nine CEOs, as well as cabinet secretaries and senators, and they're all hardworking, accomplished, talented people. But the ones who really can break through and make a difference are those, you know, with who see that communications is not a soft skill, but a rock hard competency and dedicate themselves to it. And again, I, I give a lot of credit to, to my boss, Albert Borla, not because he runs a big company, but because he's, he brings a, a visionary capacity to this. And he, my boss is Greek. And he likes to quote um, Greek philosophers. And in the heart of the pandemic, he he reminded us of the words of Aristotle, who said, our problem is not that we aim high and miss. Our problem is that we aim low and hit. And I thought, well, you know, I mean, this can be true for any human endeavor. It doesn't have to be as epic as a vaccine. It can be a, a simple day-to-day desire to connect or a, a day-to-day way in which you help people. Um, and so the the things that I pull from this and the, the 10 chapters that you kindly mentioned are all things that each of us can do. They sound really simple, but they're hard to live. You know, the first one, what am I trying to say? Channel your intention. That gets back to that intentionality that Albert had about the vaccine and then that I had about creating confidence for it. You know, we, we can all set intentions. Um, I do it all the time, even in the simplest of communications. If I'm, you know, talking to my slightly elderly parents, I, I try to be patient. I say, be patient. When I'm talking to my um, young adult daughter, I say, don't be judgmental. You know, I, I send myself these little words of intentionality and even before, you know, speaking with you today, I, I really stopped for a minute and said, you know, gee, I hope I can provide some insights that are helpful. So, you know, each of these 10 chapters has a kind of simple, but I hope profound idea that you can achieve whether you're a sole proprietor or leading a multinational company. Yeah, it's so important. I, what are your thoughts on the immediacy of today's communication? I think of actors or politicians or people in the spotlight who have ended careers or nearly ended careers in a single tweet. And I think, boy, they they would have never called a press conference and put that in writing and read it aloud in front of microphones, you know, (laughs) but are are your, do you have recommendations or maybe policies inside of Pfizer on how we kind of take a pause before we communicate and think with intentionality? What's your advice there? Oh, such a good question. Um, I even have a, a, a chapter that says um, that take time to pause and prepare. I, I don't know about you, Dustin, but I make most of my big mistakes when I'm rushing. If I'm doing something while I'm multitasking and doing something else. And so, you know, I share some embarrassing examples in the book about things I mistakes I made when I didn't stop and do the due diligence for myself 
that I would do for anyone else I was advising or supporting. So first and foremost, you know, take that pause. And then secondly, you know, you talk, a, your, your question has embedded in it the, the challenge of some of today's channels. You know, like you say, you wouldn't call a press conference and say something stupid. <laughs> um, you, you know, you, you wouldn't write a letter, probably even a handwritten letter and say something rude or, or, uh, um, you know, uh, annoying or offending. Um, but today's channels, whether it's Instagram, TikTok, um, they, they lend themselves to being a little too quick. They also represent enormous opportunities, these channels. So I think it's important to think both about your content and your channel a lot and, and where, what content belongs on what channel. And, and that is something that, you know, I am spent a, a ton of my time thinking about. But the last thing I want to say about this question is I really argue against cancel culture. You know, Brian Stevenson, the great uh, social activist, says, we are not the worst thing we've ever done. And it pains me to see someone who's worked hard, who's, who's built a practice or a career, be brought down by a single comment. I, I feel, and my last chapter is about seeking harmony and tries to address this question about why are we all so angry. And I, I think we need to seek harmony in the world. And it's part of communications. It's part of leadership. And that we ought to be able to disagree agreeably, to keep in our mind the possibilities that maybe we're not always right and allow for a gracious dialogue. I, I'm truly passionate on this point. Yeah, so I love the book because as you read it, you can clearly get the sense that, okay, these were critical principles when the stakes were so high during the pandemic and launching a vaccine. But also going back, they apply to lower stakes challenges that arise in the business as well, maybe about expansion or maybe acquiring a new division line or a new service or product line inside of a, even a small business. So a lot of our listeners are in that realm as our industry gets consolidated through private equity. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I think I think back to when we joined a private equity group. That time with our team explaining the opportunity and helping everyone see that, as opposed to the threat and the change and you know, the newness of well, who's who's our boss now, and you know what, what's 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 different and what's going to be the same. It's just such a well-written book. And I, and I love those principles. You share a story in the book about humility. I want to make sure we get to, and I'm curious if this is the niece that's in medical school, but you, you learned something on a fishing trip and I want you to share the story because I, I loved it. Thank you. And it is the niece that just started uh, medical sure. school. So um, I try to start each chapter with a, a personal story. The book is really very intimate. And this story that you're asking about, I'll, I'll never forget. It was a a sunny summer morning and um, we were in the country and uh, I took my little niece who was then about six on her first fishing trip. And I mean, not a trip, it was just a, a fishing morning really. <laughs> it, and it's something that I used to do with my grandfather um, and it was a very meaningful time. So we get it, we gather all the gear, the rods, the bait, the bucket, and we go sit by the pond and sit by the pond and sit by the pond for hours with not even a nibble. And, you know, I'm trying to give her encouragement, you know, jiggle your line or let's look under the shade, maybe where the fish want to be. 
Um, and it wasn't until I was just about ready to pack everything up and go back to the house when a fish struck on her bait and her line went taut and the fish dove and she's reeling in the fish and I grab the net and, and we cat, catch this little fish and this little girl, just six years old, gets a big grin on her face. And I say, Carolyn, you caught your first fish. And she says, no, Aunt Sally, we caught the fish. <laughs> and, you know, here she is, just a kid. Um, but I, it struck me because, you know, a lot of times our bad habits don't come until we grow up and get an ego or, or vanity or, you know, insecurity. That it was so easy for her to share that credit with me, and it meant so much to me, that I go into, at, at some length, the importance of sharing credit with others and how that builds followership and partnership in, in very powerful ways. It's amazing how kids get it right so often. <laughs> they haven't been conditioned to all the other things that we tend to mess up as we get older. I just I really love that story. So it, It's thank true. You. There, there's another section in here about uh, staying curious, that that's very important. And you know, when you're a kid, kids ask the craziest questions like, you know, why is the sky blue? Or <laughs> why is ice cream cold? And when we get older, the, the, the shades drop on our ability to express true questions and, and an open spirit. So yes, we need to bring our inner child to this work. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Dr. Burleson here. You've heard that real estate should be a part of every investor's portfolio, but maybe you're unsure where to start. My good friend and colleague, Dr. David Phelps, leads an investor community that has ditched the traditional Wall Street model for the stability of real estate assets. They are called Freedom Founders, and they do real estate really, really well. David's Freedom Blueprint reveals exactly how much you need to retire. Some of my top clients have done the program. They speak highly of David and his Freedom Blueprint. With the certainty of their passive real estate investments, Freedom Founders members are free to spend more time with family or even leave the practice altogether. David has put together some special resources for my listeners. To access, just text Dustin to 972-203-6960 or Go to freedomfounders.com forward slash Burleson. And now back to the program. Yeah, I love that. Someone years ago, I should look up who the quote is from, but it, it was an advice to you know everything you see, see like a sunrise or a sunset, see it as if you're seeing it for the first time you've ever seen it or try to imagine it might be the last time you've ever seen it. And I think mm. that might help our communication certainly me i tend to i used to joke and say the only time i take my foot out of my mouth is to switch feet (laughs) (laughs) i've learned to maybe give a little bit more of a pause and uh you clearly cover that in the book very very well Uh, i have to mention this because i grew up writing thank you notes i mean it was just pounded into us as children from grandparents and parents to write thank you notes and you give four truths about effective thank you notes. So I kind of squealed with delight when I read that part of the book. Can we talk about how listeners should approach thanking others? Absolutely. And another funny story here is, um, of course, my mom did the same. You know, she pounded it into me too. But I, I learned about thank you notes in the professional context when I was at the Estee Lauder companies. And Leonard Lauder, who was my boss at the time and an icon in the beauty business, he was so kind. And when I first started the company, 
I didn't have a lot of contacts in the beauty business. And so Leonard took me around to the various publishing houses and introduced me to the powerful beauty editors that were so important to our, our jobs and our work. And one of them was very rude and she kept us waiting, which I, didn't matter to me, but you know, for him, I, I thought it was terrible. And then had a stand across her desk while she sat. She sort of barely made eye contact, gave us short shrift in terms of time, and then sent us packing. And as he and I were leaving the building, he looked at me and he said, don't forget to write her a thank you note. And I was like, what? You know, she was so, so terrible. He said, nope, that's what we do. And he explained to me that before his company was a multi-billion dollar enterprise, when it was a very small business, uh, they would write thank you notes to the buyers in the department stores. They would write thank you notes to customers. They, they couldn't afford advertising. So it was their form of advertising and a way to connect with people and remind them about their business and themselves. So I've, you know, worked hard on my thank you notes. I usually start each day writing a few by looking at my calendar from the day before and saying, hmm, who do I owe a thank you to from yesterday? And it, it's a wonderful ritual really to, you know, sort of see, see yourself in the context of other people. In terms of my advice about writing thank you notes, um, one of them is to be very specific. Um, not just, you know, thanks for having me to dinner, but thank you for having me with the wonderful vegetables from your garden and enjoyed the company you gathered and maybe name a person or two that you particularly appreciated meeting. You know, for thank you notes, specificity really makes the difference. And then the other point I'll, I'll conclude on here is that it's never too late. You know, sometimes I think, oh, I should have written a thank you note to so-and-so, but so much time has passed, I'm embarrassed. It is never too late. People always appreciate it. Oh, I, I love it. And I I feel like today, especially because so much communication is digital, when I get a handwritten thank you note, I think the postal carrier like puts them on the top. Like They just feel special. They've got a real stamp. They've got a right, mm-hmm. they've handwritten. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love that. I love that. That's great. I, that's such a powerful lesson from Leonard Lauder. I, I'm curious, any other lessons I know in the book you, you covered? kindness and graciousness, was that something that, that that you felt throughout the company or was it only at the top? What was that like? Well, I think in companies big and small, what happens in the, in the top is what happens throughout. People watch leaders. And if the leader is acting all, you know, gruff and huffy, then everybody starts acting gruff and huffy, you know, and if the leader takes the time to say hello and thank you, everyone else does. And you know, that's why leadership is just so, so very important. I mean, I saw Leonard Lauder would go to the stores, go back behind the counter and shake the hands and thank usually women who were selling the product. Um, he would greet the elevator lobby guard with by name. And these are things that I, I really have, have tried to bring to my life as well, because it just feels good and it builds a loyalty and a passion. I I was fortunate to be able to go back and interview Leonard. Um, Even though I'd left the company a long time ago, I went back and interviewed him for the book. And he talked about that this is really something that is part of their culture, their company DNA. So it permeates. There's so many leaders that embody those 
traits. And I think it's a common misconception. I'm not sure where I read it, but I've felt it with certain organizations where people think, well, when I'm at the top, then I'll have time to be kind and gracious. And I was like, I don't know that we're, that we're understanding. Like that's how Leonard probably got to his position is because he was kind and gracious. Exactly. Yeah. I'm yeah. curious, you work for one of the neatest CEOs. Anytime I see Albert on CNBC or any TV, I stop and listen. Cause I just love listening to him talk. What's that like? What's it like working with Albert Borla? How do you see, similarities in his leadership style as you saw with your other CEOs. I'm just curious what that's like. It's amazing. Um, I, I feel that Albert is a once in a lifetime person. Um, if you followed him, then you might know that he has a powerful backstory. Um, his parents narrowly escaped the Holocaust. Um, you know, he himself is a, a veterinarian, which is interesting to me. He had spent most of his career in Europe. And so for these reasons, the, the, you know, the Europe, the veterinarian, it, it is not the most common path to becoming a CEO of a big pharma company. So I, I love that he made his way um, in a unique way to this quite high post. Um, he's a very caring person. And you know, during the most stressful days of the pandemic, when we as a team were meeting, you know, three or four times a week by video call, he could be tough. And um, if he was tough, it was not uncommon that he would call you back later privately one-on-one and, you know, give give you his ear, lend a shoulder. He has a very personal uh, approach to, to leadership and to management. And going back to sort of his quotes and some of the things he likes to say, he often says, you know, Sally, people don't know what they're capable of. And it was true. You know, I think for all of us, the scientists, the regulatory officials, the, you know, the, the people on the manufacturing floor, we didn't think we could do these things. Um, and I mentioned earlier that I embedded the media with us along the way, which was kind of crazy to allow them in and have all this access because I thought, oh, I might be filming a great debacle. Um, but in the end, they got it and they understood the story and they were able to share it. And I'll never forget, we found out on a Sunday that the vaccine worked and we announced it to the world the next Monday, the day after. And that one uh, set of journalists who had been with us dropped a huge story in the Wall Street Journal, pages and pages and the headline was Pfizer's vaccine, crazy deadlines, and a pushy CEO. <laughs> and when I saw that, I laughed, you know, because um, I might have chosen a different word, like tenacious, driven. But in essence, it was true that if if you ask me, what were the two things, you know, say only two things that that how you did this. One was the the audacity of the vision. I mean, if if Albert had said we're going to make a vaccine and eight years rather than 12 years, we would have just, you know, hurried up. But by saying we're going to do eight months, by creating this wild ambition, it made us th rethink everything and how we did it. And then the second thing was him. I mean, I truly believe if he had not been CEO of our company at the time, we probably wouldn't have been the first company to make a vaccine. Uh, so, you know, to every person who's listening to us today, whether it's the context of your practice, your family, your community, your church, 
you know, you as a single person have the ability to make ma- massive change. I love that. I love that they use the word pushy. I sometimes see um, headlines, especially digitally, where I'm going, was this an algorithm that chose that word? Because I agree that's maybe not, maybe not the best word to use there. Uh, it seems like and from the the sense I get from watching Albert on TV and what I've read about him, that he's very funny and uh, you know fun to be around. Have you learned anything about humor and levity from Albert that you want to share? Yeah, you're right. He's so funny. Um, and if you don't mind, I'd love to tell a quick story. Um, when Albert and I first became friends is when we were peers um, on the executive committee before he became CEO and my boss. And I didn't know him very well, but um, in my capacity leading the Pfizer Foundation, I organized a trip to Africa to see the good work of our um, colleagues there and the impact of some of the medicine that we donated. And, um, you know, Albert was kind of quiet on the trip, taking a lot of photos. I was leading the trip, so I was probably talking a lot. And we were in a small village, and we had been at a maternal clinic, and uh, it was a very remote location. And we were just kind of uh, catching our breath under a shade tree, um, visiting with the community before we were going to get back in our van to leave. And this elderly gentleman from the village, shock of white hair, big walking stick, gorgeous robes, uh, came up to me and he said that he wanted to trade me uh, for two cows. Unreal. And I was speechless. I, I mean, you know, I'm a woman executive. I'm a feminist. I, you know, I, I started to get my back up and, and almost to sputter. I really didn't know what to say. And then Albert kind of sauntered up from the back of the group and he went up to the elder, got right in his face and said, she will not be sold for less than four cows. (laughs) You know, with that, um, we Uh, all burst into giggles and it was quite clear that this gentleman was joking with us, but I had not seen it because I was taking myself too seriously and Albert demonstrated to me the power of humor to lighten the mood, to diffuse a, fun, a, a tense situation. And I actually ended up writing a chapter on humor. It's one of the 10 principles to lighten up and to display your humor. And it was the hardest chapter to write because humor's become tough in the workplace. And going back to your good question, you know, people are afraid that. Um, They'll be taken in the wrong way or canceled for, for a weird comment. But I try to give some advice on, you know, how to use humor effectively and in ways that bind us together and don't disparage other people, because I don't want to live in a world where we can't have humor and joy. So we got to learn to do it in a good way. And Albert is a master at it. Yeah. I love, and a, a good example, you can do it at a very high level at one of the most valuable companies in the world and a leader in the space. And I just, when I read that story, I thought, oh my goodness. I mean, it just sounds like something that would have happened, you know, 1200 years ago, not not, not recently <laughs> with, a, with, a, with a C-level executive of a major pharmaceutical company. I thought, well, I came over and just diffused it with a little bit of humor. So uh, that's, that's so cool. Um, I'm curious your thoughts. Everyone's talking about generative AI and, you know, especially ones that are based on language models and where you see that fitting into communication. Because the more I see 
you know, this threat of everything being displaced by, you know, particularly in this industry and in communication, generative AI, I think, wow, I just double down and think, well, we need more Sally Sussmans in the world to make sure all of this goes in the right direction. What are your, what's your approach to your, your team with using something like chat GPT and, and, um, and, and the future of communication if we don't keep an eye on it? Mm-hmm. It's so interesting, Dustin. I've been out talking because of my book. Every, every event I do, I get a question about generative AI because it is so on our minds and of the moment. And I'm of two minds, really, because first, I think for healthcare, it can do so much. Um, you know, we're looking at it to see ways in which it can speed drug development, that we can use the high powered technology to, you know, be able to reach people more profoundly and to work more quickly and more effectively. Um, for communications, I, I know that there are some big upsides out there. I was laughing with my team thinking, I wonder if we can get ChatGBT to write our annual report so that we don't have to write it, you know? Um, and Albert has encouraged all of us to build AI, generative AI into our goals. Um, and I think that's, you know, really, really um, important to say, how can, ask yourself, how can I use this to help me? And then try to explore that. But I have one big caution or concern, and that is we're in a new epidemic or pandemic, and that is um, a pandemic of disinformation. And I saw it so close and up, up front in the pandemic when people were saying terribly untrue things. You know, I even saw where people said that Albert's wife had died because he forced her to take the vaccine. What a horrible thing. Thankfully, she's alive and well. But, um, you know, we have to make sure, working with government, that there are guardrails, that there are guidelines so that, yes, we can enjoy the fruits of generative AI, but protect truth, which I, I you know, there, there is only one truth. There, there is only one science. You know, you, when these things come under attack, I, I get worried. Yeah, I agree 100%. That's that's a great answer and I, I I hate to ask it again because you're getting it a lot on the on the book trail, but thank you for for uh, your insight cuz it's no, on I'm everyone's glad, mind and yeah. I'm glad yeah. you asked it and I'm glad we're talking about it and we should all be talking about it. Um not a problem. I you know, I love interaction on these topics. I I write a lot also on my LinkedIn um you know and if I I can't respond to every comment, but I sure as heck read every comment. And let's, you know, let's have a, a dialogue about a generative AI in healthcare. I think it's really important. It's fantastic. I could talk to you for days about your book. It's brilliant. Uh, and, and all the research. I just want to make sure we give listeners a chance to learn more about the book, about you, what's next, and particularly maybe the Pfizer Foundation, because it is very inspiring. Great. Well, you know, you've, you've asked a lot of really good questions. I you know, I feel incredibly fortunate uh, to have found my way, Dustin, to this moment. Um, a friend of mine in New York here who was instrumental after 9-11 to help bring the city back said to me right at the start of the pandemic when we were pursuing publicly our, our d desire to bring the vaccine forward, he said, you know, Sally, 
the only thing harder than being at the heart of a crisis is being on the sidelines of a crisis. And I knew immediately what I what he meant. And it's a feeling that you're fortunate if you can be helping others. And I'm sure many of your listeners uh, will relate to that because you're in the, the business of helping others, not really a business, it's calling. And so I, I feel very grateful that I work at a company that is purpose-driven. Our purpose is breakthroughs that change patients' lives. And in everything we do, whether it's our work to reduce healthcare disparities through the foundation or discover new medicine through our pipeline or reach more people through our access programs. You know, it's just a gift if you are working in a zone that allows you to be, you know, driven by purpose and express purpose. I love that. It's just such an honor to speak with you. I love the book. We're going to make sure we get show notes and links below this audio for everyone to go check out more about the book, Breaking Through, Communicating to Open Minds, Move Hearts, and Change the World. Sally, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you, Dustin. You've been listening to The Burleson Box. A special thanks to Sally Sussman for coming on the show today. And please tune into our next episode where I'll be speaking with Emily Miller, CEO and founder of Off Limits, about her book, Breakfast, the Cookbook. Until then, be sure to subscribe on whatever app you might be using right now. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review. Thanks for supporting what we do and for listening to The Burleson Box. Are you trying to increase your treatment plan close rates while also increasing revenue? How can you do both for your dental practice without burning out an already burdened staff? The answer, remote dental monitoring. You need a trusted HIPAA compliant app that helps you and your staff work smarter, not harder. This needs to be an easy to use, easy onboard app that your patients will find fun to use and will increase their engagement and success with aligners. You need the InHand Dental app. The InHand Dental app allows you to engage with your patients in real time, send individual and batched messages, and solve problems to increase compliance without using up chair time. The result? Happy patients, happy staff, and happy practices. With more revenue and the ability to do more starts. With prices starting as low as $149 a month, it's perfect for a growing aligner business. Check us out and learn more at InHandDental.com. Plus, mention Burleson for a 20% off discount on your subscription when you contact us. That's InHandDental.com.